Let's study scripture together. Ephesians chapter 3, if you're already there, I hope you're there. We're going to look at uh, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. That's why the, the series is called Rooted. Being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So if somebody asked you to describe Christianity, if they asked you this question, what does Christianity feel like? What does it feel like from the inside of Christian faith? How would you describe that? Here's the thing. Christianity is meant to be experienced. Christianity is certainly more than an experience, but it is not. Biblically speaking, it is not less than experiential. You, think about it this way. Um, you can be orthodox and not know Jesus. You can love the Bible and not know Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures constantly, but you refuse to come to me. You can lean into all kinds and be active in ministry. Matthew chapter 7 the people come to Jesus and they say, we've prophesied in your name. We've worked miracles in your name. We've done all this stuff, these spiritual things. And Jesus says, I, I never knew you. There are thousands of people probably right here in our city in Birmingham who know the doctrine or believe in eternal security. The idea of justification lasts forever. Once you believe in Jesus, you, you're never out. You're always in. There are thousands of people in Birmingham who believe eternal security but have no reason to feel eternally secure because they don't know Jesus. All right, somebody told them or they picked up the idea along the way that if I just uh, walk an aisle, if I just pray a prayer, I get to go to heaven. Uh, Jesus will take the wheel when I need him to take the wheel. I, of course, I'll take it back when he's done getting me out of a jam, right? That's the sort of idea that prevails in these parts, right? And, and best of all... Um, He's not going to interfere. He's not going to meddle with my love life, with my money, with my weekends, with my hobbies. But here's the thing. You read the New Testament. That's not a gig that Jesus signs up for. That is, that is not New Testament Christianity. The real Jesus changes us, transforms us. We experience life with God in a powerful, transformative way. Real Christianity is God coming down, pulling you out of the grave and staging a revolution at the core of your being, led by the agent of the Holy Spirit himself. And God begins this work of renovation in the deepest part of your inner man, by which your heart, soul, mind, and strength are aimed at one thing, increasingly, bringing glory to the one who saved you. That's real, transformative, 
experiential, powerful Christianity. And Ephesians chapter 3, if you will, is doing two things. Ephesians 3 is saying to those who have embraced lifeless religion dressed up in Christian garb, it's, Ephesians 3 is holding out its hand and saying, come with me, there's more. And Ephesians 3 is saying to followers of Jesus Christ, it's, it's saying you can ask God for a sound mind that understands the scriptures and you can ask him for a heart that's on fire for Jesus. Those two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, experiential Christianity is what we were made for. Who wants non-experiential Christianity? <laughs> Right? Who, who wants a Christianity that leaves you exactly the way you were before? There's a man, in, I love it, in, in Acts chapter 3, you're reading through these stories, and Luke is recording them for us. And you come to Acts chapter 3, and you see this guy who encounters the power of Jesus. And after he encounters the power of Jesus, what happens? Luke says, here's what he did. He went walking and leaping and praising God. There was this affection, this pent-up joy. He met Jesus, and you could see it on his face. There was a radiance in his countenance. I'm, I'm watching um, the, the series, The Chosen, which is about the life of Jesus. And so far, I'm only three episodes in, but so far, it is so powerful. In the first episode, I'm not going to give a ton away, but in the first episode, um, a woman meets Jesus Christ, and she is oppressed by demonic powers she's overcome by these demonic powers and then the moment that Jesus touches her she just crumbles into his arm she falls into his chest and just begins weeping and she's free experiential Christianity doesn't leave us the same let me just let me just add a, a contextual comment about us about our local church the Church of Brook Hills. I don't, my sense, I don't think that we're in danger of overemphasizing the experiential component of the Christian life. I think, if anything, I fear that we might lean so heavily on the academic side um, that we haven't always given space, haven't always given place for people to just fall into Jesus' arms and be free and walk and leap and praise and sing and dance, right? Ephesians 3 is, is a story. It's not just a story about Christian experience. It's a prayer for Christian experience. It's not a narrative. It's a prayer. It's God, give me, deepen in me this experience of what it means to follow Jesus. So experiential Christianity, what's it like? What you hear in these words is a few things. Number one, reverence for God. Reverence toward God. You see there those opening words in our text. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. You think about fatherhood in our culture. Our culture doesn't typically associate fatherhood with reverence. It doesn't associate fatherhood with honor or respectability. You just think about TV, right? Pick a TV show in the last 30, 40, 50 years. If it's a comedy show, who's the dunce? Dad, right? He gets to be in every program. He gets to be the, the idiot, right? Everybody loves Raymond, home improvement, 
Archie Bunker, The Simpsons, Married with Children, right? The dads are cavemen in every one of these shows. It's their job to be a caveman. So, but that's different than the world, the culture of the Bible. The Bible doesn't associate um, idiocy with fatherhood. It associates honor and respectability with fatherhood. Paul says, this is the original article. This is the pattern. The prototype of fatherhood is God, the father. And I'm bowing my knee in the presence of the father. I kneel, you see those words, before the father, from whom every family, but it's the Greek word patria, from which we get patriarchy, from which we get paternal. One commentator translated it, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. There's this instinct of reverence before God the Father. We kneel before him because he's worthy of honor. We kneel before him because time has not made us equal. We kneel before him because he isn't dependent on me for life. I am dependent on him for life. He's the eternal God, he's the Alpha and the Omega, our, our Father in heaven. What is the first petition when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a, it's a request. May your name be treated as sacred. May your name be hallowed. May your name be held in highest esteem. Jesus was teaching his disciples right there, uh, this, the instinct of the child of God to say in the presence of God at the outset of prayer, Father, there is no one more worthy of respect and honor and admiration. There is no one whose character, whose integrity is more unimpeachable than yours. And I get that. And I'm kneeling before you. I'm bowing before you. I recognize and revere you. Um, I got injured in a bike accident when I was in kindergarten. And it was a Sunday morning. And I asked my mom if I could go for a quick bike ride. And I, uh, I rode my sister's bike, which was too big for me. And I crashed going down the curb. And my face hit the pavement on the street and knocked me out cold. And I had to be rushed to the emergency room. Well, my dad was already at the study praying and preparing for the gathering. He was the pastor of the church. And uh, so after I'm already at East Jefferson Hospital, um, I hear my dad come barreling in and I can hear him down the hall. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but they wouldn't let him in. And I could hear my dad talking to them getting kind of lathered up about him. And I, and I didn't understand everything that he was saying, but I was just laying there. I was just so proud. <laughs> I, remember, I remember feeling that sense of like, everybody should just listen to my dad. He knows lots of words and he, he, you need to get out of his way, right? He's, he, he wants to come to me. Everybody needs to listen to what he's saying. You think about this by way of application, what does reverence for the Father look like in your life? What does reverence for the Father look like in your life? What does kneeling before him look like? Um, Keziah Mickens is a teenage girl in our church. We love her parents. They're dear friends of ours, um, Kiwana and Michael. Michael's one of our elders here at the Church of Brook Hills. And Keziah's, I think she's 13 and we're friends because I and I are also friends on Instagram. So I follow her post and she's 
she gets from her parents just an awesome sense of humor. So she's hilariously funny. So that's enjoyable. But but also mixed with the, the normal things that just a teenager or a person posts, I'm so edified and built up by her love of scripture, her, her attentiveness to what God says. Uh, so she's often posting scripture. Here's a couple of examples. And then there's another one. You can pull this next one up. I can't read them from here, but I'll just give you a second to read that. Just biblical truth, and you can scroll to the next one. And this is just an example. Like I read, I read those posts day after day. And even this week, as I was looking at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, I thought, what is, what is Keziah doing? She's, she's kneeling. She's, she's bowing. She's saying, everybody, right? She's whistling. She's saying, everybody, you just need to listen to my dad. You need to listen to what he says. He's, uh, he's so quotable. He's so wise. Listen, here's one of the things that he says, and she's just quoting the Father, God's word. One of the deepest impulses of a Christian is to ascribe honor to our Father in heaven. That's a deep impulse that the Holy Spirit puts into our hearts. Before Paul even begins to list his petitions, his prayers for them, we see already, we see this experiential aspect of the Christian faith, that there is this recognition, you are worthy. We are not the same. You are, you are the ageless one. You are my father. So after this picture of reverence for the father, the first thing that we learn in this text is the father, something about the father, that he is both rich and strong. So the second point is this, strength from God. Strength from God is a part of Christian experience. He says, I pray that he, the father, I was just talking about kneeling before, that he, the father, may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Here's a takeaway for us. The father is strong, but he also strengthens. The father is strong, but he also strengthens. You ask the question, you're looking at verse 16, where does the strength come? Where does it arrive? And Paul says, strengthen with power in your inner being. How does the strength come? He answers that question with the last three words, through his spirit. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples before he ascended, before he went to the cross and then ascended, and he said, um, it's going to be hard for you to grasp this and to believe this, but trust me, it's to your advantage that I go away because when I go away, I will send another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will, he will live within you. He will reside in you, and that's going to be the ultimate Game changer. Why do we as Christians, when we look at scripture, why are there so many passages in scripture that say things like this? And maybe if, you, if you're familiar with some of these things, maybe you can even say it right where you are in your living room. Uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Or God is at work within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why don't we have so many passages like that? These and so many other places in scripture are reminding us of this next truth in our notes. The Christian life is not naked commands unaccompanied by help and power. 
It's not naked commands unaccompanied by help and power. Yesterday, um, my daughter Elliot and I came. We drove here to the Church of Brook Hills to our campus uh, for one reason. It was to sing in the stairwell um, because there's great reverb in the stairwell. And so Ellie came here. We kind of just stood in the stairwell, and she just starts singing songs. She's singing some, some of her favorite pop songs. And then I go get something from my office, and I come back, and I hear her singing the Star Spangled Banner. And she's just singing all these different songs. And then we go down. We get out of the stairwell. And then we, we come down here backstage, and, and we take the cover off the piano. And I sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And even while I was singing that, you come down to the last verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I hadn't noticed this before, but the last verse is experiential Christianity. Get it. Listen to this. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. It's experiential. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. It's experiential Christianity. You get strength. You get pardon. You get peace. You get a cheering presence. You get him guiding you on your way through life. Hope for tomorrow. Right. Verse 16 is Paul praying, give them, these believers, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In their inner being, strengthen them through the Holy Spirit. Friend, let me just ask you, Christian friend, are you leaning on your own strength and running out of resources? Look, if that's you, Ephesians 3 says, take me by the hand. Look what you can ask God to do, to strengthen you in your inner being through his spirit today. Then you can ask again at five o'clock. You can ask whenever you need it. You can ask first thing in the morning. You're never going to tap him out. He's never going to be like, look, you keep asking. All you people can't ask at once. I'm, I'm run out. I'm going to wait for new stocks to arrive, uh, supplies to arrive. No, he's got it. He's infinite in his capacity. We can keep asking him for strength, downloading strength from heaven for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It's experiential Christianity. I hope you have it. Reverence for God. Strength from God. Three, faith in God. Verse 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you ask the question, wait, I thought Christ already dwells in our hearts through faith. I, I thought that Christ dwells in us by his spirit the moment we trust in Christ and believe the gospel. So then how can we pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith when he already dwells in our hearts through faith? Again, Paul is after something more than concept. He wants to add to their theological knowledge and experiential reality. He wants them to know it not merely as a concept, but as a life-changing experience. He's praying for this experiential expansion in the soul of believers of the indwelling Christ and his power and deeper and deeper faith. Again, we, we pick up the mode by which this experience becomes increasingly ours. Look at the, the text. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's how you get it, through faith, which then begs the question, well, how does faith come? 
No, well, scripture answers that question, doesn't it? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God or hearing the word of Christ. And this brings us right to the reality and blessing of the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing, hearing God's word. This is how we grow. This is how we become increasingly conscious of the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is why on this side of heaven, life with God is inseparably connected to the knowledge of his word. Inseparably connected to the knowledge of his word. You know, we talk a lot here at Brook Hills about roots and reach. How do we have deep roots? We talk about we abide biblically. We pursue transformation. The picture of rootedness in, in Psalm 1 is this tree that's in the soil next to the running waters of a river. And that river represents God's word. And the psalmist says, when we meditate on his word day and night, the waters of, of God's word are providing nutrients for our faith so that our leaf is always green and we bear fruit in every season of life. You ask the question, how do you get roots? How are you going to stand up in the storms of life that we're facing right now? How are you going to stand up in the storms of life that are coming in the future? The answer is you're going to get rooted in truth, rooted in God's word. His word is true. His word is without error. That's what the word inerrancy means. His word is sufficient. His word is spirit. His words are spirit and they are life. The writer of the Hebrews says his word is living and active. Look, this is how this book by the Holy Spirit brought to the heart of the believer is how God makes believers immovable. How he makes us solid and fruit bearing. We abide in him and let his words abide in us and we bear fruit. Church, let's stay under the word and let God turn acorns into oak trees. That's what he does through his word, by his spirit. He turns acorns into oak trees. He grows us. He sends the roots of faith deeper down. Let's teach it to a coming generation. Let's teach it to our kiddos, right? Let's recover the practice of Deuteronomy 6, where families are reciting, remembering uh, God's word, writing it on the doorpost, writing it on the gates, talking about it when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise so that our children and their children know the Lord, not just as a concept, but as an experience of, that fires the heart. Biblical truth, biblical theology, firing up an experiential faith. We don't want anything less than that, right? That's what we desire. That's what scripture holds out to us and God holds out to us a deeply experiential, life-changing faith. And Paul isn't content to just leave it general. He says in verse 18, God, I want them to grasp not just scripture in general, but the gospel, to grasp the love of Christ, its length. He says it's width, its height, and its depth. At the center of the Bible is a love story. The love story at the center of scripture. As one author summed up the whole Bible in six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Whole Bible story summed up in six words. It's a story. It's a love story, right? That's why as a church, we, we, um, we stay close to this central story of the Bible. We stay close to the good news of the gospel. Here's the story. That God is holy and perfect and eternal. And there's only one true and living God in three persons. And he made us in his image 
all human beings in his image to glorify, to enjoy him, to reflect his glory to the world around us. But we said, no thanks. And we threw up our fist into heaven and said, I want that throne that you're on, move over, right? That's what we did. And Adam and Eve, they fell away from God. They rebelled against him in the garden. Everything broke. And now we come into this world and we deserve judgment because our hearts are turned away from God, not toward God. All we like sheep are going astray. That's the natural default setting of humanity. But God, instead of judging us, which he could well have done and rightly have done, Scripture says in Romans 5, verse 8, God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ came into the world, fully man, fully God, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for the sins that we had committed against God, took our punishment on himself on the cross, and rose again three days later. And he is now the only hope of the world. By believing in him, having been granted the gift of repentance to turn away from sin and trust in Christ. That's the only way we can be saved. That's the only way our sins can be forgiven. So let me just ask you, wherever you are, I can't know where you are, but have you believed this gospel? Have you put your trust in the one Savior and hope of the world? And to believe that from the heart, that news about what Jesus has done, is to have your sins forgiven, past, present, future Gone, guilt gone, shame gone, objectively gone, right? Eternal life is yours. Life with God begins the moment you believe and lasts forever. You're adopted into his forever family. The the late John Stott unpacked this verse this way. He said, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt him to heaven. I love that. I love these words in verse 18, that that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. So this, this increased comprehension of the gospel happens in community. In order to grasp the gospel, we need community. We need local church. We need one another. If, if, Look, think about small groups. I hope you're in a small group. If you're not, get into a small group. We invite you to get into a small group. And if you're in a small group, uh, think about that as a vision for the essence of the, the greatest thing small groups could do at Brook Hills is verse 18. If Brook Hills did verse 18 in our small groups where we're comprehending with all the saints the height and width and depth of gospel grace, there would be some serious strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow experienced in our church, in our members, right? Reverence toward God, strength from God, faith in God, and finally glory for God. Glory for God. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So gospel-saturated people are marked by confidence in the Lord and passion for his glory. Confidence in the Lord. Now to him who is able and passion for his glory, that he would get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. That's, that's experiential Christianity. That's an impulse that's firing in the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, verse 20 
now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think. That verse rebukes so many of my um, me-centered, small God, spiritually unambitious um, status quo prayers. To him who is able. You know, we look at the state of the world. We look at the state of the church, not just the culture. Look at the state of the church. And instead of being this light bearing people, brimming with hope, living for the glory of God, the church is full of, of gossip and tribalism and division and factions and all of that, right? We, we look at that long enough and we start to get cynical. And verse 20 doesn't really make any experiential sense. We need verse 20. And the reason I, I talk about this in the context of the church is because Paul says in verse 21, to him be glory in the church to all generations. The church is God's plan A for advancing Christ's global glory. And there is no plan B. The church is the horse to back. Right, so we lean into local church life and God is doing work in our hearts, in our souls. God's word says, don't look at the church through the eyes of human cynicism. God is able. He is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think. God is able to deepen the roots of faith and extend the reach of his gospel. Let me just ask you, does your life sound like verse 20 is the background track? He's able. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask, think, or imagine. Or are we caving into despair, caving into cynicism? One of the, one of the less known um, aspects of American political life is something called, a phenomenon called the unfunded mandate. And this is something where uh, the federal government requires local and state officials to do a certain thing, implement a certain program, but doesn't fund it, requires it. It's law. You have to do it, but we're not going to give you anything to make that happen. You know, we can, we can view the Christian life as an unfunded mandate. God requires holiness. He's not going to help that happen. He's not going to fund it. He's not going to provide for that. Do it, but you have to also come up with the resources to do it. Ephesians 3 is not an unfunded mandate. Ephesians 3 is calling for deep faith and funding it. It is calling for spiritual power and funding it. Grasp the unknowable depths and heights of the gospel, but it's fully funded by heaven's resources. That's Ephesians chapter 3. You put together verse 16, that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. And then verse 20, to him who is able. Commentator Peter O'Brien says, has Paul asked for too much? Has his boldness gotten out of hand? No, for it is impossible to ask for too much since the father's giving exceeds our capacity for asking or even imagining. The, the late great preacher, Matthew Henry, a couple centuries ago, he said it this way. I love this. This is why he gets quoted 300 years after he's gone. There is an inexhaustible fullness of grace and mercy in God which the prayers of all the saints could never draw dry. Believer, <laughs> ask for the moon. Ask for great things. God has infinite supplies. God's never written a check that bounced. His checks don't bounce. He has 
fully funds all of the initiatives of his kingdom at work in our hearts. You think about the power that's already at work within us. What has God done in your life as a Christian? Just up to this point, Paul talks about that, according to the power that is at work in us. Let me just ask you a question about your own experience. Has God, have you ever known God's comfort in the midst of trials and sorrow? Has that been your experience? Has, he, has God ever guided you in the midst of a, a season of confusion? Has God ever rescued you from the throes of shame or guilt or addiction and brought you closer and closer to freedom? Has God, uh, has he transformed you by calling you into his purposes, giving you ministry to do and stretching you and pulling you out of your comfort zone to where you look back at yourself and you had to do a double take. Like, who is that person? What happened? How did I get there? Where, where God just started using you in glorious and beautiful ways, big and small. That's experiential Christianity. Look, this passage is here to turn your life into a life of worship. This passage is here to put now to him who is able and make it a background track for your life and just set it on repeat mode. He is able, he is able, he is able. You wake up tomorrow, he is able. The Christian life, friends, is not an unfunded mandate. He is able. But why would we settle for Christianity as a concept when we can have the real thing, and we can see the Lord do great things in us and through us beyond our imagining in our lives and in our world for the glory of Christ. You can have reverence toward God, strength from God, faith in God, and a heart that reserves all the glory for God. Let's ask for more.